Last week, I shared about how we, uh, our families, for Christmas, do Amazon wish lists. So it kind of takes the guesswork out of figuring out Christmas presents. That we go sometimes, you know, you go rogue and you get a present not on the wish list, which is like you know a big risk because they didn't ask for it. So maybe they'll now be really upset with you. Um, but we have these wish lists, uh, which is nice because then it's like okay, when I'm opening my presents. Uh, that my parents give me or, you know, Katie's family gives me. We do this, draw names for that. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get something off of this list of things that I know I like. Because uh, one of the, you know, it's maybe only a slight overstatement to say that it's like one of the most stressful things for me when I'm opening a present I don't know what it is. Because it's like, am I going to like this? And am I going to let the person down? Because I face isn't lighting up with glee when I open it and see it. And there's... You know, waiting with anticipation, I open it up. Oh, uh, you know, it's like a stressful moment. Like, am I going to like this thing? And I'm caring about the other person's feelings. So then this wish list is like, okay, unless somebody, went, you know, went off the rails with what they're supposed to do, like whatever I'm opening is something I picked out and put on this list and it's not going to be a surprise and I'm going to like it. But we can have this thing where we kind of want all the things that come into our life uh, to be something that we've planned, um, that we, you know, the gifts, it's like, the, God, what I want you to give me, the gifts I want you to give me, are the things that I've listed out for you. I've planned it, um, this is what I want, and here's the things I want you to put into my life. And so we're kind of wanting the same thing from God, of like, uh, whatever comes our way, it's like, I want it to be what I planned, and what I expect it to be, and the things that I sent off to you, God, I sent you my list, things I want, and those are the things I want you to bring into my life. Um, and we can, we can want to have um, kind of all the answers, to know what's coming, to um, say, God, this is how I want you to work. I want you to work in this way at this time, um, and this is what I want you to do. You know, we tell him uh, our list of gifts we want him to bring into our life. But so often, God doesn't work that way. He doesn't bring things into our life, uh, the gifts that we want all the time. And the question is whether we're going to see what he brings into our life as a gift, as if we're going to receive it as something from him, if we're going to look for him uh, in how he's working, whether it's in the way that we wanted it to or not, the way we listed it out, if it fits into our categories and our boxes. And this week we're continuing, continuing our Advent series called The Birth of King Jesus, and Advent means arrival or coming, and it starts the fourth Sunday before Christmas, and we prepare our hearts to celebrate Jesus' first coming at his birth. But even though Jesus' coming, as we saw in Isaiah, was prophesied and it was promised and there's all these hopes and longings. I mean, I brought the lyrics for O Come, O Come, Emmanuel up here. Like I said, these weren't written like in the Bible or something, but the, it expresses so well the hope that the people of Israel had. This O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, come God with us, God be with us. Ransom captive Israel. We saw last week how Israel had gone into exile. They had forfeited the, the, the land. They weren't obeying God. They weren't being faithful to their relationship with him. And so God said, you know what, you don't get to live in my house and not follow my rules. And so they had to leave the land. It says they're mourning in lonely exile here. They're, they're, you know, whether they were being faithful or, or, or didn't care about God at all, like being taken from your land into this foreign nation and uh, have seeing your city that you love and your land that you love taken over by other people, like that's a thing to mourn over. So they're mourning in lonely exile and until the Son of God appears. 
Now, they didn't necessarily um, all think like, okay, like God himself is going to take on flesh and come to us. Like nobody was really thinking that. Um, but they were looking for the son of David, um, who God said, he's going to be my son. I'm going to parent him like he's my son. There's going to be this king in the line of David, and he's going to be uh, called my son. And so they're longing for this, longing for this to happen. They're wanting this king to come. And you can think of it as they wanted God to do this thing. They wanted to have this gift brought into their lives that God said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give, I want to give you this gift of having this king come who's going to take you out of exile, who's going to put everything back to how it's supposed to be. My presence is going to be with you. And so they're waiting for this. But even though they're waiting for it, when Jesus comes, it's not quite what they expect. And so a lot of them have difficulty with it. But our big idea for today is Jesus is the king, or is a king who saves. Jesus is the king who saves. That's a simple statement. We'll unpack it a little bit. But Jesus is the king who saves. And they were waiting for someone who would come to save them, someone who would come to rescue them, someone who would come to deliver them. But what exactly they're being saved from or delivered from or rescued from um, was something that they didn't quite expect. And so we're going to turn to our passage, uh, starting in the first two verses, chapter, or verses 18 and 19 of Matthew chapter 1. Let's reread that as we explore this big idea. Jesus is the king who saves. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her <coughs> quietly. And we saw last week, when we were looking at the genealogy, the first part of this chapter, if you look in verse uh, 16, when we finally get down to Jesus, you know, we're getting this family history of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the King God promised. Verse 16, we get to end Jacob, who's the father of Joseph, and Joseph is the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who's called the Christ. And it doesn't say that Jesus was born to Joseph by Mary. Uh, it says that, okay, Joseph is here, and he's the husband of Mary, and from Mary is where Jesus comes from. And so we're already see like, okay, uh, that's a little different than what we saw above when we saw other people, other wives included, like verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And so Salmon had Boaz by Rahab, but it doesn't say Joseph had Jesus by Mary. It says Joseph, the husband of Mary, um, of whom Jesus was born. And so we see in verses 18 and 19, like, okay, what's, what's going on here? And we're told that the mother of Mary, she's betrothed to Jesus, and betrothed is, a, is more serious than engagement. If you're betrothed to somebody, it's like you were already married, but you hadn't yet uh, consummated the marriage. You hadn't yet moved in together, yet, yet uh, had sexual relations yet together. Um, and so it, this marriage was probably arranged by their parents with Mary and Joseph's consent, and they're both probably under the age of 20. Mary's probably something like 14 or something. Joseph is maybe a little bit older. Uh, but once they're betrothed, they're considered married. Uh, we're told this was all, uh, we see at the second half of verse 18, before they came together. It was before that they had come and had uh, sexual union, before that they had moved in together. And that would happen on the wedding day. And so Joseph discovers Mary's pregnant. And of course, what would you assume if you haven't yet had sex yet? Okay, she cheated on me. And so there's in the Old Testament law, if somebody's betrothed, 
uh, I mean, you're married. Like, you don't, you don't, you're not messing around with other people. And so she commits adultery, he thinks. And so he's like, okay, Old Testament law actually says if you find somebody who does that, you should stone them. But Joseph says, you know, being a righteous man, like, okay, he wants to follow the law, but he doesn't want to put her to shame. He doesn't want her to be disgraced like that. So he says, okay, I'm going to divorce her quietly, and which is already telling us, this is, you know, if we're engaged, to, you know, two of us are, that sounded weird. If we're engaged today, you don't divorce someone to break off an engagement. But they're betrothal. It's like they're already married. They just haven't completed it yet. And so he says, okay, I'm going to divorce her quietly. I'm going to terminate this marriage through divorce. I don't want her to have... Uh, these, these consequences of being put to shame and disgraced by the public. He's like, I don't need, I don't want her to go through that. So even though he thinks he's been cheated on, you know, he has this compassionate response. So as he's thinking through this, his thoughts are interrupted in verse 20 through 21. Verse 20 says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins. So he gets two, he's told two things that he's supposed to do. He has this angel show up, he's considering, like, what am I going to do? Like, okay, I'm going to divorce her quietly, I'm not going to tell everyone about this. You know, maybe if people find out because they're going to see a baby or whatever, but I'm not going to be the cause of her shame. But the angel tells him, uh, Joseph, son of David, so addresses him as son, as son of David. Uh, he's in the line of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Why? For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She hasn't cheated on you, Joseph. She has a baby. Yes, she's pregnant. Um, but it's from the Holy Spirit. God has done this. And if you, we went back all the way to Genesis 1, as God's creating the world... The Holy Spirit is hovering over those waters as God is creating. And now we have this new act of creation. God's bring, bringing this new human line out of Mary as the Holy Spirit's working and hovering over her life. And actually Luke tells us in chapters 1 and 2 of his gospel that the Holy Spirit was hovering over her. And the breath of God is what gives life to Adam. And now Mary becomes pregnant by the Holy Spirit, the breath of God. So that's the first thing. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Second, he makes a statement, uh, she will bear a son. Here's the second command. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And the name Jesus, uh, in which that's how it's brought from the Greek language into English. Um, but if Jesus in the Hebrew language... Um, is Joshua. Actually, it's Josue. Josue is uh, Spanish for Joshua. So it means the Lord saves, or Yahweh saves. The, Yahweh is God's personal name. The Lord saves. And so he's called, his name is, you shall call him the Lord saves. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And so it's like, wait, the Lord isn't going to save his people from their sins. Jesus is going to save his people from their sins. He's named the Lord saves. So he is the Lord who's going to save his people from their sins. And so he's given these two commands. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Call his name Jesus. And now, this would be, I mean, how much would it take to convince you? I mean, I guess an angel showing up would be pretty good. Um, but it's like, like, really? How? She didn't cheat on me? Like, she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit? And like, he's going to save his people from their sins? Like, wait, I mean, it's like, a, we've read this story so many times 
that maybe it doesn't strike us as like this crazy thing that if this happened in your life, you know, you can imagine uh, if you're a, a guy finding out, you know, the person you're supposed to, you're married to is pregnant and like, I'm supposed to not believe that it's from the Holy Spirit and this is like some savior for the world. Like, I mean, I don't much, you know, Joseph has this moment of like, what's he going to do? And then we break from the story, uh, verses 22 and 23. Uh, this is uh, something that Matthew loves to do. And as we go through chapters 1 and 2, when we get into chapter 2, there's going to be four more of these. Matthew just loves to show um, how Jesus is a fulfillment of all of what the Old Testament pointed forward to, from chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, all the way to the last prophets that are spoken of. Jesus is fulfilling all of this. And Jesus even says in his famous Sermon on the Mount, I've not come to abolish any of that. I've come to fulfill it all. And Matthew loves to give quotations showing, look, this is a fulfillment of this. And so verse 22 says this, All this, all the stuff we just talked about, took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And if we went back into Isaiah chapter 7 that this is quoted from, that Gene read for us earlier, uh, this prophecy wasn't just a far distant future thing that was going to happen someday, 700 years later, um, but it had a meaning for them at that time too. There's, a, there's King Ahaz. Um, is very worried that he's going to be conquered by these two other kings. And then God says, okay, Isaiah, I want you to go talk to King Ahaz. Tell him that's not going to happen. And we saw in the passage that Isaiah says, King Ahaz, ask for a sign from God so you can be assured, so you can be comforted that this is actually going to, that God's going to protect you. And he's like, no, I'm not going to ask for a sign. And so Isaiah's like, fine, I'll give you a sign. Um, Here's what's going to happen. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And this, the birth of this boy is going to be the sign that God is with you, that we don't have to worry about these two other kings. God is with us. He's got this. He's going to protect us. And then we learn uh, the next chapter that Isaiah's wife is the one who gives birth to this son. Um, and he's not named Emmanuel. He's named another name. But the, the point of it is that the birth of the son is a sign that God is with us. And as long, every time you see this kid, you're supposed to think God is with us. This was the sign that God gave me, that he is here He's assuring us of this. And uh, you may think, like, wait, there's, there's two virgin births in the history of the, of the world? Like, what makes Jesus so special? And how are there so many virgin births? You know, just people having virgins, having babies all over the place. It's crazy. Um, but there's these two different uh, words. Um, and actually, in the original Hebrew, the word for virgin here doesn't mean strictly virgin. It's kind of a little bigger word. It's like a, a maiden, somebody, a gal who's younger of age to have babies, but maybe hasn't necessarily um, had sexual relationships yet. And then virgin is kind of like this more narrow word. It's like a maiden could be a virgin. She could have just uh, about to not be one or just uh, became not a virgin. Um, And then there's like this narrow category. It's like this is a young girl who has not had sexual relations yet. And then when it gets translated into the the Greek, they use the Greek word for virgin, and so then as when Matthew quotes it, he's saying, like, look, the virgin, um, the one who has not had sexual relations with anybody, is now giving birth. And then, uh, so you may think, like, okay, if this came true for King Ahaz and Isaiah in his day, like, then why do they apply it to Jesus? And well, as the chapters go on, um, from 
chapter 7 up to chapter 9, the, this child is a signal that God is with them, and it gets intensified up in chapter 9 in verses 6 and 7. And I'm going to turn there quickly to read it for us, and you'll, you'll find these verses familiar too. So Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. It gets intensified so that it becomes this, this symbol, um, this, this sign of something even greater than what happened in King Ahaz's day and Isaiah's day. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so there is this fulfillment for Isaiah in their time. Like, do not worry about these these people who are coming to take you over. These people who want to conquer you. God is with you. He'll rescue you. He'll deliver you. He will save you. But then it gets uh, intensified later on. Isaiah's like, you know what? There's going to be another child born. It's going to be a similar situation. And this child is actually going to be God with us. He's going to be called Mighty Father, or Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor. Like This kid that is being born in our day, this is a, a signal that God is with us. But this baby born in the future is going to actually be God with us. And so there's this double fulfillment that Isaiah sees. One for Israel in his time, and then for the birth of the Messiah later on and and Matthew wants to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. And we may wonder, well, how did so many in Israel, including its religious leaders, reject Jesus? I mean, with this prophecy and the miracle birth of Jesus, uh, why didn't everyone believe? Like, you were born of a virgin? Okay, <laughs> I'll just do whatever you tell me. Like, that sounds like a pretty crazy thing. They're waiting for their Messiah the fulfillment of everything they've longed and waited for has come. They're waiting for their Savior. They're waiting for God to come back. And then Emmanuel, God with us, shows up. And why didn't they recognize him? And it's complicated as you go back into the tapestry of God's plan. And there's several threads that they were following along. If you think of this tapestry with all these, these threads coming together to make this one picture of what God's going to do. And there's this thread of... When the Messiah comes, he's going to be this victorious king. He's going to reign over our enemies. Everybody who opposes God and everyone who oppresses God's people, this king is going to be victorious over them. We're going to get our land back and everything's going to be good. He's going to reign victorious. And then there's this thread where God is saying, uh, the king, there's going to be a king in the line of David. He's going to be the one who does this. He's going to be one that saves us, who rescues us, who delivers us. And then there's also the thread of we see in Genesis 12, like, I want to bless you, and everyone who curses you, I'm going to curse. And so the Israel people of Israel in Jesus' day, they're looking at their situation, and they're like, we're back in our land. Okay, we got brought back from exile, but we still don't own it. The Roman government, we're occupied by another government. We can't set up kings like we want. We can't quite worship how we want. They've set up King Herod, but we know he's in their pocket, and he's just kind of like a puppet. We don't even think he's a legitimate king anyway in the line of David. And so nothing's really going as they want. It's like, we are in our land, but we don't really have it. It's like we're still in exile. It's like we're still not at home. And so they're like, you know what? What we're looking forward to, we want this king to come who's going to be victorious over these Romans. He's going to kick them out. He's going to be in the line of David. These people have cursed us. You know what? Everyone who curses us is going to be cursed by God. And so God's going to take care 
of these guys. And so that's the one thread, that's one of the threads they were following as they're looking for the Messiah to come. Victorious, line of David, and he's going to take uh, the Romans out and give us our land back. But there's also another thread uh, that is the thread of a suffering king. And if we went further in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah gets there too. It's like this, gonna, this kid is going to be God with us. And then he starts talking about this suffering servant, that God's going to call this suffering servant um, who's going to serve on his behalf. He's going to do God's work on God's behalf, um, but he's going to suffer. He's going to bear the sins of the people, that he's going to come to Israel and he's going to be crushed and stricken. He's going to be bearing their sins and bearing their iniquities on their behalf, and he's actually going to die. And many of the prophets foresee this. Zechariah, for instance, as well, talks about this this king who's going to suffer. So there's this thread of the suffering king. And there's also the thread of God himself saving his people. If we looked in Ezekiel 34, um, God is talking to all these kings before. It's like, you guys aren't taking care of the people. You're supposed to be shepherding my sheep. But instead, you're just fleecing them. You're not taking care of them at all. You're not taking care of the sick. You're not protecting them. You're not doing those things. So God says, okay, all you kings have failed. I myself am going to come. I'm going to come do this. I'm going to protect my sheep. I'm going to feed them. I'm going to lead them. I'm going to, I'm going to care for them, and I'm going to love them. And then you're like, okay, so I guess God's coming. And then right at the end he says, I will set my, my servant king and son of David over him. And it's like, wait, is it God himself? Or is it someone in the line of David? Which one is it? And, and that thread comes together in Jesus. That's where Jesus is in the line of David because Joseph adopts him. And then he's also God himself. He's God with us. And so it's God and King David. And he also comes, and as we know, he suffers and he dies for the sins of the people. And the thread of, that they were following of, you know, everyone who curses us, God says he's going to curse them. But there's also the thread of, with that is the blessing. Like God wants to bring this blessing to the nations. That he wants to be, Israel to be this light to the nations. And the Messiah isn't going to just crush all the other nations. He's going to be this light to the nations. And so... Uh, all these threads are coming together, and a lot of folks in Israel's, uh, Jesus' day in Israel, were reading just the one thread. Victorious king, take out the Romans. They've cursed us, so they're going to get cursed. He's going to be in the line of David. But there's this other thread of the suffering king, who's God himself, who's actually coming to release blessing to all the nations. And we can ask, well, which one is it? Well, it's both. It said Jesus comes, and through his death, he is how he's victorious, and he's going to come again, and he's going to defeat all those who oppose God and who oppress God's people. And we can wonder, well, how did they miss this? How did they miss this crazy thing happening right before their eyes? And some, and we'll come back to it some more, but it's a, they thought they had all the answers. They thought they had the answer. This is how I want you to show up, God. Like, God, here's my, what we want. Here's, you know, why, I've given you my Amazon wish list. I've sent it off to you. We want the Romans out. And now I'm expecting, when, I op- when you show up and I open the box, this is what it's going to look like. You're going to take out these Romans. And Jesus looked much different than what they expected because he first came as the suffering servant who was dying on behalf of the people for their sins, not as the victorious king who was uh, getting rid of all evil. The Lord, Jesus, comes to save his people from their sins, but they reject him in the name of God and put him to death. You know what? You're blaspheming. You're dishonoring God, so we're going to kill you now. But he's saying, I'm God with you. You know, I've come to save you from your sins, 
And their sin is rejecting God. And so in their rejecting of Jesus, they put him on the cross so they die to save from them from the very sin that is putting them on the cross. And we kind of saw that in the book of, uh, when we were going through Joseph. And Jesus is the king who does for us what we couldn't do ourselves. That's another way to say, you know, Jesus is the king who saves, but Jesus is the king who does for us what we couldn't do ourselves. He saves us from our sins. We're told his mission. He's going to save his people from their sins. That's his mission. That's what he's going to do. He couldn't, we can't do it for ourselves. And the question is, why can he do this and we couldn't? What qualifies Jesus for his mission? And what Jesus does is save from sins, but the who is what qualifies him for the what of what he does. And uh, you may think it's weird, you know, we just sang songs talking about the virgin birth. You know, I believe in the virgin birth. Why is that so important? And we have in our statement of faith, like, you know, you know, conceived of a virgin. And it's like, why is this so important? Why do we make such a big deal about this? And well, there's three things about who Jesus is. Um, that are connected to the virgin birth that qualify him to save us from our sins. And the three things are, he's God, he's human, and he's sinless. He's God, he's human, and he's sinless. Jesus is able to save his people from their sins, first because he's fully God, which enables him to pay for forgiveness. Because if you've wronged me, uh, I'm the only one who can forgive you. It can't be, you know, Josue or Bob. They can't be like, oh, you know what? You know, you're forgiven of that sin you committed against Mitch. No, I'm the one who has to do it. And so there just can't be this other third party um, that comes along, you know, named Jesus, who's just this guy and says, you know what? I can die for your sins and save you from them and forgive you and tell you you're forgiven. No, only God can pay for sins. Only God can say you're forgiven. And so Jesus had to be God in order to take on the payment for sins because of uh, forgiveness is not demanding repayment because we've paid it ourselves. You know, we've taken the debt on ourselves and we paid it off and we said, you don't owe me anymore. And so in order for Jesus to die for our sins, for us to be forgiven, he has to be God who's actually say like, you owe me this debt, I'm going to pay for it myself um, so that you don't have to pay me back for it. So Jesus can save his people from their sins because he's fully God, enabling him to pay for forgiveness. Second, he is fully human, enabling him to be our representative. He's fully human, enabling him to be our representative. Because uh, we need somebody better than Adam to represent us. Currently, you know, once we, when we're born, we're born in Adam as our representative of the human race who took us down a path that has led to death, led to death. And curse, and so if we want somebody to be able to represent us in God's law court, um, we need another human. We need somebody who can stand in our place. And so Jesus is fully human, so it's not that's why it couldn't just be like, oh, he just kind of floated down from heaven and like had a body or something. It's like he had to be born of the human race to represent us before God to be our great and merciful high priest. And thirdly, Jesus is able to save his people from their sins because he's completely sinless enabling him to be our substitute. So he's fully God, enabling him to pay for forgiveness. He's fully man, enabling him to be our representative. He's completely sinless, enabling him to be our substitute. And why couldn't he just be born of Mary and Joseph? Why do you have to be born of the Holy Spirit? Why the virgin birth? And because everyone who's born of a man is born in the line of Adam, 
the man who sinned, who is now cursed, who now has this sin, who passes down the sinful nature from him to us and down and down and down, and we inherit his guilt because now he's our representative. And we may think like, well, it's not really fair that I'm guilty because I'm Adam. And it's like, but if it's not fair that we're guilty because of Adam, it's not fair that we can be innocent because of Jesus. And so we have representatives of our human race, and the human race is represented by Adam in Genesis 3 when he sins. Now we inherit a sinful nature, that we are born into sin. We're sinners by nature and by choice. And so we cannot be sinless. And so Jesus, being not born of Adam, but born of a virgin um, by the Holy Spirit, now he doesn't inherit that sinful nature. Now he doesn't inherit the guilt of Adam. And so he's born um, without, without those things, and so he can walk He's able to be, live a sinless life. So he's our substitute who dies for the sins of others and not his own. And then as we go and see how Joseph responds to all of this, like, man, that's a lot to take in. Uh, I, I'd assume he, wouldn't, he didn't think through all those things we just thought through as the angel's telling him, like, your name is named Jesus. Um, but now as we can reflect later on, we can see more in depth. But let's see how Joseph responds verses 24 and 25 when Joseph woke from sleep he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him he took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to his son and he called his name Jesus and Joseph was commanded to do two things and he does both he takes Mary as his wife and he names the baby Jesus and Joseph does exactly as the angel says even though people He's still, I mean, people can see she's pregnant and they're, you know, there's four months in or whatever, five months into her pregnancy right now, like, and then they're going to go and come together as the text tells us. And then it's like, okay, now they consummated their marriage. Wait, how are you having a baby, you know, three or four months later? Like, Joseph, did you sleep with her before you guys were supposed to? Did you know she committed adultery and that she still married her? You know, like, all these questions. But Joseph just takes it on himself. He's like, okay, um, I'm going to not abandon her. I'm not going to divorce her. You know, he could have said in that moment, you know, how many of us have felt like, I heard this clear thing from God, um, but then we didn't have the guts to do it, or we were too afraid to do it. Joseph could have been like, I mean, sounds great, but I'm not up for that. Like, that sounds really, I don't want my whole family talking about this. I don't want the whole neighborhood talking about this. I don't want all the guys at work talking about this. Like, no, I'm not, I'm not signing up for this. Like, she can figure it out on her own. But he takes it all on. He says, I'm going to do it. There could be plenty of ridicule and judgments he'd have to endure, but he takes it anyway. And he names the baby Jesus. He does as he's told, takes Mary as his wife, names the baby Jesus. And all this would take faith. Anytime we hear from God, whether it's an angel or not, you know, we have this book that we're told, this is from God. You know, this is as good as an angel showing up. We don't need an angel to know like what God says to us. And so this angel comes and gives God's word to Joseph, and we need this moment. Like, am I going to obey this and trust God with the outcomes and the results and whatever I may face if I do this? Um, or am I going to be like, you know what, I know what you're asking of me. I know what you're saying, but I'm going to go the other way. And as I was thinking about this passage uh, and what it means for us, I was wondering, like, how are we like the people to whom Jesus came, those people in Israel that had trouble believing this? And how are we like Joseph? Like I said, I think we can have some false, uh, or we can look to God to save us from the wrong things. 
and then when God is doing something different in our life, whether it can be surprising, surprising and wonderful, as a virgin giving birth to God with us, um, of this amazing thing that God is doing in the time of Jesus' birth, and it can be wonderful and surprising, and yet we can miss it, because it wasn't what we had on our list. God, this is what I gave to you, and now that's what I'm expecting, and I'm just looking for things from that list to be fulfilled. Instead of being able to say, like, you know what, God, I don't have all the answers. I might, those might not be the things I need or want, and you might be coming in a different way. And I just think that uh, as the Pharisees and other religious leaders, Sadducees and scribes and whoever else is wrestling with this, this is not what we expected. This is not the answer that we got from the Old Testament of what you would be. And instead of going back and saying, no, maybe we got that wrong. Uh, maybe we need, we should have been looking for something else. You know, am I going to listen to this? Am I going to reevaluate? Um, but they are so stuck in, like, no, this is how it needed to be. Um, and some of them, some of them come to faith, um, such as uh, um, Joseph of Arimathea and others. Um, but a lot of them, I mean, they put Jesus to death. So it's like, no, he's the gift that they've been waiting for, and yet they think they have this. This is what they had asked for. This is what Jesus is, and he's the gift they'd always wanted. Because he's not what, when they opened him up, when he wasn't what they expected. And so they're like, yeah, 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 that's not, we're just going to keep waiting. Um, and so are we like that? Do we have these false expectations of what God we want, of what God should do in our lives? Do we have a list of like, God, I want you to do one, two, three, four, uh, and I'm just going to keep asking for those things. Instead of opening up ourselves and saying like, you know, God, what's, what's your will for me? What are you doing? What are the wonderful and surprising ways that you're working in my life now, you are with me. You promised me that, um, and so taking time to look and looking for that, and we can sometimes have think we know the answers for what we need, or what God should do, or what would be best for us, and it keeps our sights narrow. We're not willing to see how God's coming to us now, and we can miss out on the wonderful things He's doing and the ways leading us in ways we maybe not expected. So a question for you to reflect on. It's not uh, like a concrete thing, go do this, but what surprising and wonderful way might God be coming to you in this season of your life, this week, this year, this month, this decade, whatever it is, what surprising and wonderful way might God be coming to you in this season? And do you have eyes of faith to see it? Or do you have a pre-planned way for how you want God to show up? And for me, it's really easy just to have like, you know, here's all the answers of what I think we need to do as a church. Here's all the answers of what I think we need to do in our life. And never stopping and slowing down and asking like, well, God, maybe you're leading us in a way that I wouldn't expect at all. Or maybe you're leading our family or maybe you're leading me to do something that would be surprising, but would also be wonderful. Like Jesus' birth and what he was like was certainly surprising, um, but they didn't think it was wonderful. Like, you don't, you're not anything we wanted you to be. But the, what we see in this passage is God leads and we need to follow. And Joseph is a I mean, huge model of that. that God, Joseph, in obedience and trust, says like, okay, I'll do it. I'm going to do it. And we, you can see Mary's perspective in Luke 1 and 2. I encourage you to go read that of what, how Mary responds when she gets the same thing. Like, 
what? I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit? Like, I mean, you know, she wouldn't have any other explanation. Like, well, I didn't sleep with anybody unless I, like, sleepwalk or something. But, so it must be the Holy Spirit that I'm pregnant. Uh, and then how she responds of just like, yeah, I'll, I'll do this. I'm a humble servant. And I was reflecting on her song in, in Luke, uh, I believe it's, yeah, in Luke 1, and just how she responds. And that can be a song that all of us um, are saying to God. But what might God... We're asking, what surprising and wonderful way might God be coming to you in this season? And what might God be asking you to do? And Joseph follows through in what he's commanded. And even though it's uncomfortable, even though it's risky, even though it's inconvenient, even though it might bring uh, rejection and ridicule upon him, uh, he follows through on it. He's told what to do, and he goes and does those things, even though there's a month delay. And maybe there's something that you felt like God asked you today to do or last week to do or maybe it was a year ago or a month ago and it's like you felt really excited about it. Man, I really heard from you, God, in that sermon or in my gospel fluency group or at a gospel community meeting or in something or when you're reading the Bible, it's like, I really heard from you, God, and I feel like this is what you want me to do. And it was maybe like kind of risky, but you were excited and it was like, man, but you're asking me to do it. And then maybe the excitement kind of faded and you never got around to it. Maybe there's a time to go back to that thing be like, you know what? I need to do that. Or maybe there's something you've been feeling, it's been weighing on you, and it's like, I think I'm supposed to do that. I know I'm, that whatever it is isn't how it's supposed to be, or I'm this relationship or this situation or whatever it is, and you felt like that's not right, but you put it on the back burner. Maybe it's now, you know what, even though it's risky and convenient and I don't know what's going to happen and it's uncomfortable, like I'm going to follow through on that. And the second thing I want to... Th- to consider uh, what we've been talking about the past couple weeks is as we are um, this weekend I'm excited for us to do our door hangers for Christmas Eve outreach and um, to do uh, the caroling at Crossroads uh, but as we've talked about before the most powerful invitation that each of us holds um, is a personal one and I was thinking through today as I was praying I was like how many people are in our church because of a personal invitation um, to like a worship service or something like that. And Carol and Jerry, you guys were a personal invitation. Like half of our, I was thinking about, I didn't do quite the numbers. I was like, like half of our church is people who came because of a personal invitation. So Carol and Jerry invited them to one of our Easter services when we were in Larry's house. Um, and then they started coming. And Heather was invited by our daughter. And I'm assuming you invited Becky, perhaps. And so Becky came from a personal invitation. And Dolores came from uh, Curtis inviting her. And Michael and Jessica, if they were here tonight, like they came from Nick inviting them. And it's like, Man, just and I just think about the, you know, the surprising things of what God can do when we invite, and how wonderful it is. It's like, man, we can't imagine life without the people sitting in this room. And just, yeah, I just felt emotional as I was thinking about it. It's like, man, what can God do? Uh, we step out in faith and we just say, you know what, God, I'm just gonna leave it all out there. Whatever you want to do, I'm gonna do this because I love these people. I don't feel. You know, let, that I'm like doing it to earn my your love or something, but I'm just gonna do it and see what you do, and maybe it'll surprise me. It'll be wonderful, and man, I just would love to see these people worshiping Jesus with me this Christmas. And so, I'm just, and one of the things that we can uh, get caught up on is feel like we need all the answers. Like, oh, I need the answer of like, okay, it has to be like the perfect person, and I have to have like prepared them, you know, seasoned that relationship for like six months. Like the, and I'm having trouble with this. I've been praying about it. I've been telling your gospel fluency group that I'm praying about. Like, God, who do you want me to invite? Um, 
And I feel like I've lost contact with a lot of the people that I would have probably naturally invited to six months ago or last year or something. And I'm like, oh, you know, maybe the, I don't want them to feel, you know, like I just want them to get to my church for numbers. You know, and it's kind of like we can feel like it just has to be the perfect timing and the perfect moment. And the relationship has to be in this perfect spot. And I just have to know all the, the right things to say. Um, and it's just like kind of how do we get rid of some of that pressure and say, you know, I don't need to have all the answers. It doesn't have to be all set up perfectly. I'm just giving this free invitation. I'm not going to stop loving them or talking to them and just saying, like, would you consider, like, spending Christmas Eve with me? Like, that would just be, you know, that would make my, my week, or I don't know how you want to say it. You can say it that way if you want. Uh, but let's just take a moment and these two questions. Uh, what surprising, wonderful way might God be coming to you in this season? And who might you invite? Uh, and And let's just take a moment to, Uh, Think about that and ask God to speak to us. final word to wrap up is that Matthew's gospel opens with saying God with us has arrived and Matthew ends his gospel with Jesus saying behold all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me therefore go and make disciples of all nations and then he says and behold I'm with you always to the end of the age we are a community that is God with us. It wasn't just like, cool, Jesus was with those people for the 30 years he was alive and now he's just off somewhere else. But Jesus says, I am with you. As you, we go about inviting people to celebrate Christmas with us, as we go to door hangers and the crossroads and art shows and whatever else we do, personal invitations, as we gather together, God is with us. Jesus promises he'll be with us as we do this, as we live life together. And we want to be known as a community following God's lead, doing his will no matter where it calls us, no matter what it costs us. And that's what Joseph did, and he just shows us this amazing example of a, of a man of faith um, that we can um, emulate as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've cleared the way for you to be with us, that Jesus has died for our sins, to cleanse us, to make us your temple, that he can come and dwell within us and amongst us. So, Father, would you give us the courage like Joseph, to follow his lead wherever he may take us, no matter what it costs, no matter where it takes, where it, where it goes. Father, would you let us be a community of joy um, that is filled with the, um, the energy of you being with us, that you have come made us your home. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.